0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Joshua. I guess I don't need two Psalters, do I? The book of Joshua, chapter ten. Now, before I read from there, I do want to revisit the line we just sang. Psalm forty seven. we sang saying that, it's verse 9 of Psalm 47, it's verse 5 as we sing it. Leaders of nations gathered round to serve as sons of Abram's God. To him belong the shields of earth, exalted greatly is the Lord. The sooner the kings of earth come to the awareness of, that there is but one high king of heaven and earth and make peace with him as he is revealed, peace, uh, they can have that inheritance that belongs to the sons of Abraham, sons of God. The book of Joshua is a record of those nations that do not wish to bow to the king of heaven and earth, who do not wish to make peace with the people of God, and receive the revelation, instead we find much fighting. Joshua 10 is no exception. It is a record of many battles that God gave victory to Israel and continues to use them to clean out the land of those who live there who practice great abominations. I'll read the whole chapter, and this is that chapter in which the sun stands still. Surely all of heaven and earth bear witness to God's covenant favor. Now it came to pass when Adonai king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Param, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel there. For the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. And they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machidah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven, "...on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, "'Son, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon.' So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies." Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Machedah, and it was told Joshua, saying the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua... And the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished. But those who escaped entered fortified cities and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machadah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, And they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. On that day, Joshua took Machedah and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Machedah, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Machedah and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. And they entered and camped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him, none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon, and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish." So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it, and he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king as he had done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, we pray, to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If there is anything that we learn from this chapter and this book and a theme that is repeated throughout the scriptures is that victory belongs to the Lord. There's a lesson that we must learn so that we do not grow like Israel grew later in the book of Joshua and even the book of Judges, presumptuous of the favor of God. And even already Israel has made that mistake. They made that mistake with Ai. They did not, I'm sorry, they made that mistake with Gibeon. They did not seek the counsel of God. And for that reason, as we saw last week, they entered into a a rash treaty, a rash vow with this tribe. Now, Gibeon was no small city, but they were struck with fear. And they came to Israel, and they sought to make a covenant with them, but that covenant did not avail them the kind of peace that they desired. They became slaves to the nation of Israel, and for their treachery they became cutters of wood and haulers of water For the house of God. They were not made children of the house, but slaves of the house. Now, there are many interesting encounters that Israel has with the tribes and nations and cities. And we find much of that in chapter 10. And when the other nations hear of the treaty that Gibeon made with Israel, they come against Gibeon. One of the principles that we find against or that is revealed about the ungodly, the godless, those who hate Christ and his people, is that they will make and break alliances at their whim in order to accomplish whatever short-sighted, selfish purposes they may have. Because they think that the God who fights for Israel, well, they don't know anything about him. They don't know that he is the true and living God. And they think that by mere human alliances, five kings here, these five cities, that if they combine their powers, then they can triumph over Israel. There is but one way to make peace with the king of heaven and earth. Now, in in principle, that we find that In Scripture, it is the king who must make peace with us. But the way in which God has revealed peace and how peace can be accomplished between men and God is that we enter into his covenant, that we enter into peace the way that God has established it. Now, we know clearly that the way in which men strike peace with God is through the Son. This is revealed to us so clearly in the cross. But in the Old Testament, it is also very clear. If you wish to belong to God, you must become one of God's children. And the way in which you do that is you take upon yourself the sign of the covenant, you pledge devotion, not in a cunning, deceptive way, but in a sincere way, you say the God of Israel is the only true God of heaven and earth. And you receive his law as your law and him as your God. Now, as we look at this text this evening, I want to move through it relatively quickly. It was a long text to read, and there are just some basic principles that I want to flesh out of this text uh, that I think are even helpful for us today, and especially when we look at Christ, who has come uh, as the one who has brought great victory and is faithful in his ministry to us. Three points. The first, eating their own. We see this among unbelievers, eating their own. Second, the hanging of kings. And then third, the southern campaign. Let's look at the first point, eating their own. Now, these tribes were not allies with Israel, nor were they really allies with one another. At the end of the day, the tribes who lived in the land of Canaan were not innocent. They were guilty of great, heinous sins. Many of these tribes would offer their children to their pagan gods, and they would murder them for the sake of appeasing their false gods. These were wicked, violent people. Now true, all men, having been made in the image of God, have something of him that they reflect in the way in which they live. And so we rightly confess, as it relates to the doctrine of man, that all men, before they become children of God, are totally depraved. Now that does not mean that they are as sinful as they could be. But every thought, every inclination is wholly cursed. Not only is it devoted to wickedness, but none of the actions of men, apart from the redeeming mercy of God, are righteous. You and I can do nothing that is morally good. And apart from God's grace interacting with us, either generally or specifically, to bring us to a place of salvation, we would be utter savages. Now, there's a wonderful book. Um, I don't know if I would call it light reading, but it is certainly a wonderful explanation of the philosophical commitment called modernism or modernity. This was sort of a philosophical view of morality, that grew out of the Enlightenment and is grounded upon rationalism. Which basically means this, kids. Man is able, of his own accord, to determine and to do what is actually good. And the way in which we know what is good is by simply observing what we find in nature. Now, there is some good in that, but there are natural limitations, obviously. Might makes right seems to make a certain level of sense, except it is contrary to the revealed word of God. And even nature itself disproves this. Now, in order for modernity to make moral sense, it is required for men to jettison the law of God as the only standard for faith and practice and to submit that law to desire. Now, the book of which I'm referring is a book written by a guy named E. Michael Jones, and the name of that book is called Degenerate Moderns. It's a wonderful treatise on that very principle. Either you submit truth to desire or you submit desire to truth. In and of ourselves, we would, ten times out of ten, on some level, submit the truth of God that we know, even in our hearts for the law, is written in our very hearts, for the desires that we have. You sin because desire beats truth. Even in your life, saints, you sin because you want to. Now, these tribes that had none of the redeeming covenant mercy, the revelation of God, his law, revealed amongst them, when it came to survival, these are the kinds of things they did. And instead of making true peace, not the kind of peace that Gibeon wished to make, they went to war. And they didn't go to war with Israel. They went to war with the Gibeonites. Why? Because they were weak in comparison to Israel. And to draw Israel out, for they knew that a covenant had been made between those two tribes, as it were, those two nations. And because Israel despite many of their moral infirmities and unfaithfulnesses, kept their vow. We see that in verses 6 through 7. They did not forsake the vow, and Joshua went quickly to their aid. Now, between Gibeon saying, hey Joshua, by the way, remember you've kept your promise, and Joshua going, look at verse 8. These moments in which God clearly communicates his will to his people, are key in understanding the events that follow after them. What does God say? The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, that is the five kings and their nations, tribes, cities, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. It's past tense. I've done it. I have decreed it. And so what does Joshua do? They mount up. And they ride to Gilgal in order to defend the Gibeonites. And from that point on, Joshua and the mighty men of Israel, the the men of fighting age, the army of the people of God, strikes them down. Now, in the midst of this battle, there is a situation in which the sun begins to set. Now, prior to that, what we find is a nation at war against those who have no desire for peace. In Psalm 120, in fact, if you want to turn there, you can turn there. In Psalm 120, we read of the heart of the saint in contrast to to the wicked men of earth. This is the first of the Psalms of Ascent. In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. He's talking about the pagan men of earth. What shall be given to you? Or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. There the psalmist is speaking to the wicked ones. You will receive judgment for your lying, for your violence. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now let me put this in terms... That, are, that is universal in relationship to the mission and work of the church then and now. Satan loves a silent church. Satan loves a church that is not on the move, that is not in campaign or crusade mode, that has not turned their eyes to the nations and see the nations as Christ says, look, the fields are white unto harvest. Go, therefore, into every nation baptizing and teaching. And when we do that... When we follow the Great Commission, when we are marching actively into the world with the word of Christ as king, Satan will oppose us. This will happen. Where the church flourishes, Satan is sure to follow. This is what he did in the garden When God put Adam and his wife in the garden, guess who showed up to spoil the party? And this is why any victory or ground that is taken by those who fight for the Lord will always receive, in this life, as we are the church militant, pushback. Pushback from the wicked. It is inevitable. And this Satan is predictable. And so as Israel is marching through the land and they are taking for themselves that which God said, this is yours, this is your land, and there are those who have moved into it and are practicing all manner of wicked practices in it, God says, I will give you the victory, go and do it. And so they go and do it. among a people who eat their own, a violent and disgusting and idolatrous people. And so they go to war. And verses 7 through 23, we find this campaign here against the Amorite kings. As they go to the aid of Gibeon, they wipe out on the battlefield the armies that have left the cities they go to later in the south. They wipe them out. And as they are fighting, as the sun begins to set in order to continue the campaign against Israel, there is a cosmic proof of God's favor. Now, here is how proofs are interpreted. Proofs mean nothing to those who do not understand what they in fact testify to. Miracles, like parables, are easily missed if God has not given us the grace to see them for what they are. And let's, so, let's say this. Let's say that there is um, an ancient pagan tribe, Incans or the Mayans, and in their lifetime they were to see a, a kind of stellar event just like this one. What would they say? There's a sign in the sky, and that sign is telling us, kill more people more idolatrous pagan practices. In fact, this is what paganism is. It is attributing to the actions of God a sort of base creaturely expression that can only rise to the point of idolatry. Nature does not give us an exhaustive expression of the glory and character of God. It gives us enough to know that there is a God who is angry with us and we fall under his just judgment because the things that we see on earth that are happening to us that are difficult must be interpreted as the God or gods are angry. This is the way the Romans were. This is the way the pagan tribes of Canaan were. This is the way that modern Americans are, right? The gods are angry with us. In fact, the former speaker of the house said and attributed to the storms in the Gulf that Mother Nature has it out for us. Now, that isn't laughable. I mean, it is, but it is desperately misguided. A, she has no idea what she's talking about. B, what was she saying? I'm attributing to some unnamed force that is higher than I the guilt of this very thing. And so what do we do? Well, we pay homage to Mother Earth. How do we pay homage? Well, you pay your taxes and we'll solve the problem. That's how they interpret it, right? That's the manipulation. Men have been and women have been doing this since the fall. When Noah built his ark, He did not build his ark among the people who were religiously neutral. No, they were desperately wicked. And for 100 years he preached to them and no one was converted. Right? He's the first OPC pastor, which I think is funny. There were two or more. He was preaching the whole time and building. Now... As Israel goes to war, Joshua prays and the sun stops. And for Joshua, who asked the Lord to do it, and for Israel, who heard him ask, and then the sun stops, what does that then confirm in the heart of every Israelite? Number one, God has authorized this battle, this militaristic campaign And he has given us the victory. As I'm watching, I would be going, yes, and let's go. But this wasn't the first natural testimony of God's faithfulness. Just prior to that, while people are fleeing, God flings hailstones. I I cannot imagine how big a hailstone is that kills a man. I guess baseball could probably be smaller, depending on the speed. But literally raining death from above. Think artillery. It's the opposite of manna, which is interesting. It is a clear sign of God's covenant cursing against those who would bring an attack against God and his people. So when we speak of Christ as king of his church, in our own confession we speak of Christ in his office as king as ruling for the point of subduing all of his and our enemies. Christ is in heaven right now and one of the things he does in his kingly office is he rains down hail upon the false kings of this earth. He reveals himself to be in control. Now, what must the church do in order to communicate to the nations of earth? What must be done in order for the terrors of a God, a righteous God, to cease? What do they need? They need ministers who tell them this is why these things are happening. These just judgments, even natural disasters, though it is unwise for us to say that this disaster is tied to this particular sin, what we can say is this, all human suffering is the product of our rebellion. So when a sinner says, why does a good God let evil things happen? You should not for one moment begin to attempt to defend God and his actions. See, this is oftentimes what modern man. And who is modern man? It's man in every generation. Every generation of men thinks themselves to be more modern and sophisticated than the prior generation, right? So those guys that had stone wheels, like I'm thinking of the Far Side comic, now we have rubber wheels. One day we'll have a far more sophisticated wheel and we'll look back on people that had good years and we'll go, cavemen. I don't know who that when that will be but that's how we think we are prideful as it relates to our generation and man says of themselves at all times man is the measure of all things and if we think this way what god will do through his people and even in nature is revealed to even the blind even when they cannot see it the nature and extent of his presence and power through the church Praise be to God that we can see it and that we can see things as they are. We see this in the book of Revelation. Now, in order to seal the deal, as it were, of Israel's victory over these five cities, Joshua brings the kings out of the cave. He has the people of God humiliate them by standing upon their necks. And then he takes them and he kills them and then he hangs them from a tree until the end of the day. And then they go to those cities, over which those men were kings, and they sack them all. And that does include the city of Jerusalem. Again, every man that does not wish to bow the knee to King Jesus will find a way to combat the reality of the campaign of his kingdom on earth, either by making false treaties or seeking to wage war against his presence. So when you go out and you do apologetics, don't get caught up in fighting the battle where the battle does not need to be fought. God does not need you to defend his moral choices. Now that does not mean that you do not need to understand who God is. But the who of God is is what communicates to us the foundation for his actions. I remember years ago in college, struggling through these issues because these questions were put to be by my pagan, unbelieving professors because they want to put God on the stand. Why do they do that? Because if they can put God on the stand, then they can get off the stand for a time. They don't feel the weight and the burden of their moral inferiority, their guilt for their sin. And I remember listening to Sproul talk about the problem of evil and sin. And one of the things that Sproul does is he doesn't get caught up in the debate that we ought not get caught up in. Or, as I would say, don't take the bait. And this is what Sproul says. God is either gracious or he is just. He is never unjust. I remember hearing that as a 21-year-old going... Oh, that's it. That's the way through this sticky problem. That God can, but is not obligated, to show mercy to sinners. He is perfectly just and righteous and we should worship him even if it means that God shows judgment and justice to every sinner. Now, we wouldn't worship at that point, would we? (laughs) We would be under his just condemnation. But he is right in doing so it would not take away from his righteousness to judge all men. But what God never is, is unjust. And so what Israel, through Joshua, does to these nations is exercise his just judgment because of their sinfulness. It is not ethnic vainglory. It is not Racism, it is God establishing his righteous reign through a people to whom he directly communicated to establish his kingdom on earth. But the problem is what? That despite these glorious campaigns and this southern campaign, which leads me to my last point, going from victory to victory to victory, is that in the end, as we see in the book of Judges, after Joshua dies, they don't finish the campaign. They stop. They stop. And what is the reason for their stopping? Because Israel, without a king, without a ruler, without a leader, did what was right in their own eyes. And that there is the crux of the matter. That man, left to his own devices, even a great nation like Israel, is prone to go their own way. And despite these glories and these victories, what we realize about Joshua and Israel and every man that precedes the coming of the chosen one, the Son of God himself is that men are inherently unable to fulfill the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so when we go out, dear saints, into this world, we go out preaching the name of Christ. Not any man or group of men or denomination or history or any identity other than Christ and Him crucified. This is how we shall conquer. We conquer through the means or the mechanism by which Christ brings either mercy or judgment. The cross. And God will in his time, because Christ has now come, one greater even than Joshua, what God will do through the ministry of the church is establish a kingdom that will never end. What we see just beginning in Joshua, Christ fulfills as the second Joshua. Now these days weren't wasted days, years, or centuries. Many of these people were truly the people of God. But people can only do what people can do. Christ must do what Joshua could not, what Israel could not. And even Josiah, I'm going through a Bible survey with the little middle schoolers, And one of the things we learn is that Josiah, he comes like Hezekiah. He comes to the throne. He establishes reform. And that Joshua dies in battle. What? And it seems to us untimely. But what do we remember? That what the church needs, what the people of God need, Is someone greater than Joshua, greater than Hezekiah, greater than Josiah, greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than John? We need the Messiah himself. And the mission that Christ has sent us on will be victorious. We will be victorious in that mission because Christ has conquered death and hell. Let's pray.